Hey, what's happening? Welcome to the Influential Communicator, the go-to podcast for your weekly dose of storytelling, speaking, and communication bullets to help you craft stories that sell and deliver presentations that win. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani. So without further wait, let's get into it. When I think of an influential communicator, I think of Anthony in Reno. Now check this, okay? Growing up in Ohio in an apartment complex, eating hamburger helpers, Anthony started his sales career at around 15 years old, where he began working for a charity with the goal of getting people to put on a bikeathon to raise money for a specific cause. In his first week, Anthony broke a company record and it became very clear that, hold up, this dude has a real gift, but he had something else on his mind. Fast forward to many years later, Anthony had fallen in love with rock and roll and decided to join the family business. Why? Because after hours, he could moonlight his passion of making it into the music industry. Anthony ends up in LA playing music, stumbles into a job in sales. And before he knew it, he had won a $10 million a year contract for five years with his staffing company. And in that moment, he was hooked. Today, as a sales keynote speaker, blogger, author, entrepreneur, everything under the sun, but more importantly, a natural mentor, I would say. Anthony is a new book, which is out now called Elite Sales Strategies, a guide to being one-up, creating value, and becoming truly consultative. And today, people, are pinned him down, okay, specifically to discuss how to communicate like an elite salesperson and have a consultative sales conversation. Dude, welcome to the show. What's good, man? I, I think we are two people with the coolest names ever on a podcast together. Anthony Anarino <laughs> and Ravi Rajani. That is just that works so well together. It feels like this is meant to be. <laughs> it's a bit exotic, you know. It's it's a tongue it's definitely a tongue twister for a lot of people, man. But like I said before, yeah, a lot of vowels, man. And I I appreciate you being on the show because when I was doing my research into the different things that you've done. I was like, man, this guy's a busy dude. And I realized that in around 2009, you took a leaf out of Seth Godin's book where you said, you know what? I'm going to write every single day. And since then, besides that trip to Tibet, which uh, you didn't have the opportunity to write, but you've been writing since that moment every day, 4.30 a.m. wake up, get your words on paper, and then you hit the gym. Now, I was fascinated by that because I think as human beings, let alone salespeople, we really struggle with consistency. So it got me thinking, what is your anchor and your why, which still keeps you interested in writing after all this time? First off, I'm always triggered by lots of things that happen in the environment. And I, I have an opinion about them. And I care deeply about what we do in sales and what we do as leaders. And so I always have something that I feel like I have to say. One thing about writing every single day is that you write it in one way, and then about four weeks later, you're like, you know what? I need to tell him this. And then you come up with something else, like, I got to give him more clarity on this idea. And so I just keep doing it. I'm a writer. So when people ask, like, how do you write every day? I wonder, like, how can you not write every day? Really? And not everybody loves writing. Some people like YouTube, some people like podcasts, and people like different mediums. But my medium is writing. So anything that I do generally mm. starts with writing. And I get up at four and I write a thousand words as soon as I wake up and get a cup of coffee. Like if as long as I've got coffee and a keyboard, I'm happy in the morning. What a ritual, man. Does this, I bet that sets you up for such a big win because I heard you say on a podcast, you said, well, if I've just done that, it means I've won the day. And I think that's yeah. amazing to do all that before you even kick off your day. Now... Just like you, man, I see myself as an ambivert and I really resonated with the idea of having a mix between an extroverted and an introverted energy like you do. Now, you're working on a lot of things, right? You're on stages, you're writing books, you're consulting, you're doing all these different things. What do you do to recharge rather? Say, you know, the lights are off, cameras are off, it's just you. What do you specifically go to to actually recharge your batteries? For me, the last hour of the day, every day before I go to bed and I go to bed early, uh, I, my mm. mom called me uh, about two months ago, and it was 8.30. And I said, why are you calling me so late? I'm getting ready to go to bed. And she says, <laughs> what are you? She said, are you a, a toddler? Like, you're going to bed at the time babies go to bed. 
And I'm like, mom, that's that's rude. Uh, I go to bed at nine because I get up at four and I need seven hours of sleep on. I'm looking at your pictures on seven hours of sleep. I'm the Dalai Lama on five hours sleep. I'm Adolf Hitler. So I yeah, want to go to bed. Yeah. But my last hour is always reading. And, and that's mm. what I do before I go to bed is I spend one hour reading every night. So you have to prioritize these things if you care about them. My mm. opinion is if you want to do something that's meaningful, do it first in the morning before people start bothering you with questions mm-hmm. and needs and all the things that people will bother you with. At four o'clock, there's only one animal in this house that cares about me, and it's the cat, El Gato, <laughs> the cat. It's a cat named Cat, and uh, he will will bother me until I feed him. And then once I feed him, uh, he'll leave me alone so I can write. That's funny, man. That is funny. Ah, man, I'm a big, I used to be scared of dogs, speaking of animals. And now I've got my dog. I'm obsessed. So, uh, yeah, I get the same first thing in the morning. It's always belly rubs and food, dude. But before you go to bed, that whatever you're reading, I find if I'm reading something, that is directly correlated to work. My brain starts firing all these ideas that I want to write down. So sometimes I feel like it's easier to read something totally unrelated. Do you read stuff which is work-related or are you reading fiction or whatever it could be? I can read anything. My interests bounce around, so I I will pick up biographies. I'll pick up, like right now I'm reading a book on writing. Mm. I'm a better writer, which I can tell you uh, the, the gist of the whole book is cut out all the unnecessary words. And so right. that's hard to do. My first uh, editor, when I wrote The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, an unfortunate mm. title when you have a three-book deal. Now you're on your sixth book. The first editor said, if somebody can say something in 500 words, you can say it in 1,500. <laughs> he wasn't trying mm. to compliment me. <laughs> mm. So I, I've learned mm. to try to take out unnecessary words. I'll read whatever I want. But listen, if you get up at 4 a.m., at 9 o'clock, you're going to be asleep no matter what you're reading. Like that. Yeah. 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 You keep getting up at four every day, you'll be asleep. People ask all the time, like, how do you get up that early? Just do it three days in a row. About 745 on the third day, you're going to be in bed asleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Did it take a long time for you to embed and ingrain that routine into your life? Because, uh, man, it's something that I need to work. My wake up and sleep times are just not predictable. They're all over the place. Yeah. It's really good to have a, a structure. Like yeah, to do the yeah. same thing every day, especially when it comes to sleep. Uh, mm. There's a, a guy here in the United States from Stanford named Andrew Huberman. He's got a very popular podcast. He's at Stanford. Okay. And he interviewed a guy named Matthew Walker who wrote a book about sleep. And he's like one of the world's foremost experts. It's a three-hour podcast. It's a very, very long podcast nerding out over sleep and the technology yeah. and things you can do. But the one thing that walker said that was really interesting to me was if you take a hot shower before you go to bed as you cool down you'll get into a deeper sleep and i'm a few years older than you i think so you want really good sleep because really good sleep gives you really good energy and you can get a lot more done so the people that say like grind it out till three o'clock in the morning you're not going to get the same result as somebody who has seven hours of solid sleep so that's my strategy is to take a hot shower get in bed read for an hour fall fast asleep and get into deep sleep. I like that, man, because I tell you what, I'm getting eight hours, but my body clock is one minute, one day, it's 9 9 p.m. Next minute, it's 11 p.m. It's not a good look, man. It's not a good look. But hey, this isn't about me. This is about you, dude. I'm here to make sure you get your sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's change the name of the podcast then. You know what? Have you got an aura ring, by the way, now that we're on sleep? Have you ever heard of these bad boys? Yeah, I have one. I also have tried uh, Apple's watch. And uh, a couple other things that I've tried. I spent 30 days using all of them at the same Mm. time. And they're all all over the map. (laughs) They're all, every result is different depending on what the medium is. So whichever one you're using. Anyway, I like the Aura Ring and my wife just got one. She really likes it. I mean, I'm a sucker for the branding. It's just so clean and chic. I was like, I need it. I need it. So they really sold me on that. But I love the functionality. It's a... It's great, man. It's great. Your wife loving the data? Is she or is she getting overwhelmed with it? Yeah, she's liking it. She wants it to be more consistent. Right. Uh, okay. She doesn't get always get the consistency that she wants. Or if you're listening, get that consistency in people with the data. Okay. But um, ladies and gents, you came here because Anthony, I would say, is 
an individual who's very contrarian in his approach at a very early stage in his career from what I learned, which must have been quite hard because I feel like as a salesperson, when you're first starting out, you're very impressionable and it's you will follow certain things which may feel inauthentic and over time you figure out what's right for you. But your approach and everything you focus on, if I had to describe it, it's just very consultative, as we would say here in the UK. So how do you personally define a consultative sales conversation in your world? This is something that people get wrong. And I always want to help them understand that it's important to have good questions. There's no, nobody would argue with you and say, no, questions aren't necessary when you're talking to your client. They are. Mm. The second thing that they would say is, we don't use any high pressure tactics. And then they would believe that that's consultative. That is not what consultative means. In fact, it's so far from the definition, it's laughable. Like that, that has nothing to do with consultative selling. Consultative selling means that I'm going to give you counsel. I'm going to give you advice and I'm going to give you recommendations that allow you to produce better results. So part of what I care about is a lot different than what other people might care about. So a lot of people think, find the problem, find the pain, and then explain how your solution solves the plane. Okay, so we've been doing that for close to 40 years in the United States. Every client that you ever sit down with, they already know the pattern of the conversation. They've already seen it, and they've seen it maybe hundreds of times. And if you were to ask a client, on Monday, you had this one sales rep come in and you had this conversation. And then on Thursday, you had another salesperson come in. What was the difference between the two conversations? And they would say, I think the first person was taller and had lighter hair. And I think that the second one had a red logo because it reminded me of my first car. Like that's all they would recognize because everybody does the same thing. Let me tell you about my company as a way to gain credibility. You're going to have credibility as soon as you start talking. They're going to know whether or not you know what you need to know to be helpful or not. And talking about the history of your company isn't going to give you credibility. You're trying to get credibility from something that's not even in the room with you. So not a great thing to do. And then you'll say something like, here's some logos of the companies that we work with. It'll all be big companies that are super impressive and that the client could care less about. They're not interested in other people's businesses. They're interested in their own business and their own better results. So you're wasting a lot of time. And then you'll ask a question about, well, tell me what's going on and tell me about what kind of problems you're having. The same thing that everybody else has ever done in sales for 40 years, maybe longer. And people are burned out on it. So the reason that people don't want to meet with salespeople anymore is because they don't create any value. And so what I figured out for me was that if you can create greater value for an individual or a group of individuals, they will prefer to buy from you because you have taught them more than anyone else about how to make the decision and about how to get better results. Now, what most salespeople think that is incorrect is that the solution is the value that they need to get to the client. Okay, so that is true when you win the business. Now you're responsible for doing that. But there's value that has to be created in the conversation. So if there's no value being created in the conversation, they're not going to buy because there's no reason to buy from you. Like you haven't taught me anything. I'm not better positioned to make a decision than I was before you got here. That's a consultative approach. And so I, I will tell you most of the time when people have trouble getting a meeting, I can get them to go from maybe two out of 10 conversations to four just by telling them to say, uh, Ravi, I've got an executive briefing I want to share with you on the four trends that are going to have the biggest impact on people in your vertical over the next 12 to 18 months. And I'll give you some of our best ideas about what we see working and what's not working. And look, even if there's not a next step for me, you're going to know how we think and you're going to want to challenge your management team to start having some of these conversations before it's too late. What do you look like on Thursday? I'm trading value. I'm promising you there will be value in this conversation. You don't have to worry about me wasting your time because I got an agenda that's all about helping you. It has nothing to do with me. And so I never open a conversation. I had a guy try to get me to open a conversation using the legacy approach to sales and I stopped him. It was hard to stop him though. He said, uh, 
Anthony, tell me about your company. And I said, Tim, that would probably be the worst use of your time I could possibly think of. And he said, no, no, I, I really want to learn about you guys and what you do. And I said, well, the best way for me to tell you who we are is to tell you the things that we care about. And then I pivoted to the trends and explained to him, like, this is what's going on in the environment. This is why these things are happening. At the end of that meeting, the four people in the room when he left were, you know, his, his lieutenants and the woman sitting across from me said, how did you do that? I didn't know what I did. I said, what did I do? And she said, Tim has never been in a room with the salesperson for more than seven minutes. And I said, well, I think we were just having a really good conversation. He got so much value out of the conversation. He didn't leave. And why was he only in there for seven minutes? Because that's probably about the time it takes for you to describe your company and what you do, which he already knew because he already invited me in. Like he doesn't need me to tell me, tell him what we do. He knew that when we got there. Anyway, there's this conversation value. And if you get that part right, then you win the business and then you deliver the rest of the value. But we think the value is talking about the solution when they can't even feel it or see it or hear it or be near it. Like there's there's no reason for them to understand the value that comes from that because the value is in the conversation. So that's what I care most about. Oh man, I love that. Especially what you said there around the concept of the education piece, as well as talking about key industry trends, your predictions, and also shifting them away from talking about, hey, my company does X and we help Y versus showcasing the vision, the mission and the values. Because yeah, you're right. It shows people more about who you are. And it's got me thinking as you were talking, because who would you say, this show, as you know, is about communication, storytelling to really close more deals in an authentic way. And when it comes to communicating in a manner like you just said, who do you think traditionally has performed better, extroverts or introverts, when communicating like a trusted advisor? The research that I've read suggests that it's the ambivert. It's the person that can be an extrovert when they need to be, but also be an introvert. But we have to be careful with a, that kind of a conversation. So an extrovert generally gets energy from other people. I'm an extrovert, except for when I'm on stage. On stage, I'm an introvert. And then I can get, you do what I do. So you're in Vegas, you spend time with a bunch of people, you go out and you have an energetic speech that you give them, and then you hang out and you answer questions and all these things. And then at some point you're like, I gotta go to sleep. Like they took everything <laughs> out of me. I don't have anything, like I gotta go. And it's just like that part you switch and you're like, I got so much energy from them and I gave them so much energy. Now I'm out of energy. So that's an extrovert. An introvert, if they have to engage with people, they're just getting drained like right out of the gate. They're just automatically being drained by this. I think ambiverts do pretty well because there's a play, right? Like I'm going to talk. I'm going to give you some energy. We're going to have an interesting conversation. And then I'm going to have you giving me information. And for an introvert, that's harder for them to do. So you have to try to be the introvert and get them to be a little bit more communicative. If you've ever been in a room where there are people who want to have a conversation with you, but don't say very much, you got to work really hard to be a good communicator because part of the communication is coming this way. So what I describe to you is what I call the one up position. So I'm one up. I know more than you do about the decision that you're making and the results that you need. I don't know more than you, like a contest, like which one of us knows the most. You know a lot of things. I know different things. So I'm in the one-up position and I have to help you and I have to communicate that in a particular way. I have to communicate information disparity. I know something you don't know. May I share it with you? Who says no to when somebody asks if you can share? You've been taught since you were a little kid, like sharing is caring. So if you say, can I share an idea with you? People don't generally go, no. I don't want to hear your idea. They're like, sure, let me hear what you got to say. And so you can get some communication going that way. If you think about somebody like uh, an Anthony Robbins, who's a particularly great communicator, he's one up and he carries himself like he's one up. And you trust his advice because of how he portrays what he knows and how he knows it and how you should do something. That's the role that you're in. Now, 
you also are one down at the same time that you're one up. So there are a lot of things that you don't know, Robbie. Me too. I'm surrounded by books in here because I don't know very many things and I have to try to learn more things because what I know got me here, but it isn't going to get me any further. So I need to find new information and correct my own information disparity. So I like to be one down and ask clients, educate me on your business. And then they start transferring their information to me so that I can help them better with what I know. So you want to be in the one-up position when you're giving people counsel, advice, and recommendations. And sometimes you have to help them recognize that they're in the one-down position because sometimes they think they know more than they do. If you have to, you have to sometimes say something like, uh, Robbie, when was the last time you made any adjustments to your overall strategy? And how have those strategic decisions uh, helped or harmed your results? I don't know the last time we looked at our strategy. I just taught you something about you that you didn't know. I just had you go inside your own head and go, whenever, if you're a salesperson and you ever hear somebody say, that's a great question. What that means is you just taught me something about me. And I like that. Now I trust you that you're going to have other good advice for me because you just taught me something about me that I didn't know. And that's what happens when you're in the one-up position is you can give people that aha moment by asking them questions that cause them to discover about themselves. So the old way, the legacy way of selling is like, tell me about your problem. I'm going to explain something to you so you understand your problem because I need you to understand you have that problem and why you have that problem. And I'm not going to come in and ask you what your problem is because I already know what it is or we wouldn't be sitting together. So I just think that all of this stuff has moved past what the legacy approach allows us as communicators. We have to communicate something different. It's not what's your problem. If you work in an industry for five years and you walk in and sit down and you say, what kind of problems are you guys having? I want to go like, is this your first day on the job? Like, have you not already helped a lot of other people before you got here to talk to me? (laughs) Why are you talking to me if you don't have some sense of what kind of help I might need? I don't want to talk to you because you're one down. You don't know anything. I need somebody who knows more than me. And listen, you probably have clients like I do who trust that you know more about sales effectiveness than they do. And they just offload that to you because they go, Ravi can handle that for me because I'm not a sales expert. So I'm going to hire people who know more than me. So I don't have to know everything. You can go back to the Bible if you want to. You're going to read a whole bunch of stories about powerful people who surrounded themselves with people that knew things that they didn't know. So this is uh, Aristotle with uh, the Greeks. It's um, Munger with Warren Buffett, like everybody here in London. So Harry Hopkins was the guy that convinced FDR to join England and, and start giving you guys what you needed in the way of money in World War II. Like there's a whole whole bunch of stories. It's uh, Aristotle and Alexander. Alexander is a good leader but he got tutored by the best in the world. So that's it. So that's your job. Like you have to be consultative, which means you have to really be good at what you do. Actually, I'm going to take it back for a second. Somebody once told me, a silent mentor once said, ego stands for everybody's got one. But sometimes in uh, sales conversations, especially, there can be resistance from somebody who may have a ton of expertise and they may have a belief that, you know, what can this person teach me? So it's really interesting where you speak about that specific question to teach them something new, to create an effective pattern interruption. Is there anything else that a brand new salesperson could do when they are communicating with these seasoned CFOs, C-suite individuals? If they, in their mindset, feel one down, even before they've entered the call. Yeah. I got a whole chapter on what to do if you're one down. Like you, you, you have to do a lot of work to get out of there, but get out of there as fast as you can. You need to hang around with salespeople who already know how to have the right conversation. But, but what I would tell you in that case, so what you're talking about mostly is alpha males. Now there's Mm. alpha females too, who know a lot and who are very aggressive in business. But I would tell you the easiest way to do this is to say, I'm going to recognize that Ravi is an alpha male and he's got strong opinions and he doesn't like to be shown that he's ignorant in a whole bunch of areas because he's sensitive about it because of the way that he grew up. I don't know what happened. He had an older brother that was way smarter than him, whatever. I don't know what the circumstances are, but there's something there. So you just start that conversation by saying, Uh, Listen, Robbie, what I'd like to do is share with you these four trends. And listen, I know they're 
likely the things that you're already tracking and paying attention to. And what I'd like you to do is share your perspective with me because it would really help me understand, you know, some of the things that we might not be seeing that you're probably more aware of than we are. Now I just protected Robbie's very fragile male ego. So now he can take in some new information. They get a chance to talk and they feel a lot better about it when you do that. So you can give them the protection that their ego needs so that they don't feel like you're the smart person and they're dumb, that they're ignorant, but they are ignorant about a lot of things. But if you go to them and say, you know what, you're really ignorant. I have to correct this because you're not going to do very well because look at you. That's not going to be a very good way to communicate. The easier way is just to protect the ego for the individual. That's your responsibility because you're one up. So you know that if somebody looks like they're an alpha male, and you can probably see it pretty quickly. I hope you can. If you're in sales, you should be able to pick that up very fast. But then you just give them that protection so you can get into the conversation where they can learn. It's harder for alpha males to learn just because they already want to be smart. And I prefer to be one down. Literally, how I learned how to understand business was asking clients, true story, limited brands had a a division called Structure. I won their business. I took it away from two giant companies. The main person there was a guy named Dallas Mulder. And Dallas invited me to all their production meetings. And they kept talking about throughput. And I understood what the idea was. It was like how much goes through the process. But they were doing it like math. And I didn't understand the math. And I snuck into Dallas's office before I left after a meeting. And I said, uh, I understand what throughput is, but you guys are doing it like math. And I don't understand the math here. And he goes, do you want me to show you the math? And I said, yeah, I'd love to show the math. And he goes, well, let me put up a a spreadsheet. And he, he put a spreadsheet up on his computer. And he said, your number right here is the cost of labor. And we're dividing that by how much revenue we're going to join, the revenue that we're going to get from what came through the process today. And then I had this idea of throughput. So I now understood how they were doing it and how they were calculating it. How many days later did I walk into another distribution company and say, tell me about your throughput numbers? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was less than a week. And I'm like, now I'm an expert on throughput. I have no idea what it really means. I just know how the math calculation works. And the guys that I was talking to are like, how did you learn about throughput? And I'm like, well, I work with other people in distribution. And now I'm one of them. Now they're like, hey, this guy actually knows how to talk to us. And that's part of the communication. Do you understand what they do, why they do it, how they're measuring things? And that's the one-up position. Like You have to have that. But you have to be one down enough to decide that you have to learn. And anybody who wants to teach others should start by learning themselves. Like that's the, the fastest way. What you mentioned about the inclusiveness of the question and also asking their perspective is fascinating. So for those of you listening right now, I would go rewind and go listen to that because that was some gold right there. You need to, you need to write that one down. That was really good, man. I love that. And I suppose this leads me to the question of, the actual, we've spoken about the structure of how you communicate like a trusted advisor. But when it comes to the delivery component, you're a natural storyteller. You've been doing Toastmasters since you were 38, you said, and you speak on stages all the time. Now, as an engaging communicator yourself, somebody who doesn't have that experience on stages or communicating in that way and may see themselves as some people describe themselves as monotone or uninteresting. They may have this belief that they can't deliver a a message in a captivating way. What advice would you give them when it comes to delivery of having a consultative sales conversation? You know, one of the the challenges for people is that they, they don't rehearse what they're going to say. And so they're mostly winging it and they're mostly relying on something they heard from someone else. The best thing that you can do to get better at delivering is to rehearse and rehearse with other people. If I'm going to be talking to a client and I'm going to start using sort of the script that I use, uh, which is easily found on my, my website, if you just type in the word proprietary at the sales blog and you'll see that script, it's just very, it's easier if you already know the script and you've already rehearsed it and it's already in you to deliver it. So when I, when I say, 
Robbie, listen, I understand you're super busy and you're concerned about wasting time. I want to promise you that you will not find this a waste of time at all. In fact, you're going to leave with a number of conversations you want to have with your managers. What do you look like on Thursday afternoon? That's not the first time I've said that. That's maybe the four or fifth hundredth time I've said something like that. So the reason that I can deliver it is because I believe it's true, number one, and I've said it a whole bunch of times. So anytime you have a conversation that you have to have, that's a difficult conversation or an important conversation, I always rehearse it. I always write down like, what are my talk tracks? And can I say it better? Can I say it more effectively? And so this is a, a show about communication, like what you communicate and how you communicate are both important. So it's not just that you're communicating, it's sometimes how you communicate. And especially for somebody like me, because I'm so direct, I'm, I'm a super direct person. So I have to soften things. So I like to use really soft language because I'm a really direct person. So for mm. me, it's easier for other people. In the United States, most people think I'm a New Yorker. Really? Because of the directness, really? Yeah. New yeah. Yorkers think I'm a New Yorker. I asked him <laughs> directions last time I was there, and he's like, how do you not know where that is? And I'm like, I don't live here, man. I live in Ohio. He's like, I thought you were a New Yorker. Uh, that happens to me all the time when I'm in New York because of my directness. But because of that directness, to make it easier and more consultative, I ask really soft questions. I ask in really soft language. So I would ask, like, uh, would it be okay, I'm asking for permission, would it be okay if I shared with you what tends to be most helpful for most people when we get to this part of a conversation? And so I'm asking for, I don't need permission. I just want them to go like, okay, he's giving me my autonomy. Guess what? They already have their autonomy. I'm not giving them anything that they don't have already, but it feels better to them that I'm not pushing them through a process because I keep asking for permission. And then after I've asked for permission like two or three times to do that, and then I just start telling them what to do, and then they generally just take the command instead of the, the permission. It's a, it's a subtle thing, but it works really, really well once you understand how to execute that, which is ask, ask for permission, ask for permission, and then say, great. Uh, Robbie, the next thing we're going to do is I'm going to get my team together with your team. And what we'll do is we'll make sure that we tailor this so that's perfect for you. And at the end of that, we'll be in a better position to make a decision. Now I'm just telling you. Mm, but if you've asked permission, mm. first, it doesn't feel like that anymore because I've been soft at the beginning of this thing. But that's, that's my adaptation for my personality. If you're it's, conflict averse, it's probably not necessary for you to do that because you're probably too soft already. Yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. When you said the words, would it be okay for somebody who's conflict averse, that could be seen as, oh man, I'm people pleasing again. I'm people pleasing yeah. again. So it's really funny how to look, uh, to look at your perspective of it and interesting. And I think something that I've been listening when it comes to your voice throughout this call, I mean, I could listen to you on the Calm app and probably fall asleep. Like, you know, you know, like Matthew McConaughey's voice, like a lot of people listen to, I feel like you've got one as well, where it's so calming and you can't hear any nerves. You can't hear also, you hear bottled excitement, but you don't hear fear. Now, my question to you here is, were there ever moments in your career where the fight or flight response did actually get triggered? The amygdala was firing and the pacing in which you're speaking now went whoop, and it was just out of whack. How did you handle that? Because you're so, rehearse is the wrong word because it's natural, but you can see that you're seasoned at communicating in this way. Tell me about a time where it, it didn't go as smooth. Oh, maybe, I don't know how many years ago, quite a few years ago, a new stakeholder took over one of my largest clients and, and she was a very difficult human being. And I'm an Enneagram 8. So if you know what the Enneagram is, eight's about the most aggressive that you can possibly be. So really, that's my, that's my natural disposition. So what yeah. you're saying is the adaptation of ah. not being that. So there's three angers in the Enneagram, the ones, the nines and the eights, we're all angry, but the ones and the nines don't behave like we do. Like I'll be like, bam, like I'm, I will go from zero to a hundred on anger for about four minutes and then it goes away in just like two seconds, it's gone. So I'm sitting across from this woman as she tells me 
uh, every bad thing that she can think of to say, and then tells me that we are charging her too much and she's going to go with another company and unless we reduce our markup in that particular case. And I had to check to see, like, I was wondering if people could see that my ears were turning red because they were burning. Like my ears were literally burning. I got super, super direct. And I said, listen, there's a whole bunch of people that are going to tell you what you want to hear and that you're going to get what you want, but you're not. And I've done this for over two decades. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to make a mess. Okay. So that's one. (laughs) Another one, when I was in staffing, a guy came into town, he opened up a new business and I tried to give him the insight to say like, you can't pay what you want to pay right now and get people. It's, it's you're, you're off of the market by a wide, wide margin. And I tried everything to get him to understand this. And he didn't understand it. He didn't want to believe it. And he's like, well, I pay less than that in North Carolina. And I always have people. And I said, you're not in North Carolina, friend. You're in Columbus, Ohio. Like I said, here's what I want you to do. Get a shovel and go out behind the building and dig a hole because you're going to throw your business in that hole. And- <laughs> oh, no. no, you did it. <laughs> I did. I did. Because you're going to bury your business. And I said, listen, don't believe me. Don't, don't trust me at all. Ask other people. Like, Ask other people whether or not September is going to find you in a difficult spot. Because when it gets to September, you're already dead. Like, If you don't do this, you're already dead in September. And he said, I'm going to take my chances. In September, he called and said, we shut down all of our lines. Can you help us? And I said, no, we can't help you. I told you we weren't going to be able to help you in September. It's too late. Another company took all of his business away from him because he failed them because he didn't take the advice that I gave him. And that's how it goes. So sometimes I can be super direct, but I I was trying to get this communicated to him in an aggressive way because my polite way wasn't working with him. Mm. His business is now gone from the city uh, because I tell the truth. I, I will tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. Because yeah. I'm a trusted advisor. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you something to make you happy. I'm going to tell you the truth because that's all we've got, right? We got to figure out how to do something. And you always have to go with the truth. Uh, so it's the truth at any price, even the price of the deal. I didn't get a deal from that guy. I did get the company that took all his business away from him though. <laughs> so that was good. You know, it's funny when somebody says, so Anthony, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go get a shovel. <laughs> like when, they, when they're so calm about it, it's actually scarier. It's actually weirdly comes across more impactful than if you're like, you know what, Anthony, here's what I need you to do. Like it's the level of impact and the contrast is, is scary, man. That's scary shit. <laughs> the content carries all the emotion by itself. Like I don't need to add anything to it. I don't need to add anything to that because it's already, it's already like, you know, I'm already just giving you a nice jab there. So I don't need to add anything to it. I don't need to be emotional about it. I try to keep the emotional thing down for a couple reasons. I don't, I don't want ever people to have their hands go up. I don't want them to feel like, you know, this is going a different direction than I think, or, I haven't communicated it well enough for them to be able to accept it. So I like to Mm. bring the tension down in that, except for on the why change and on the why change. Then I'm, uh, if you don't get the why change, I'm going to work really hard to help you get it. Mm. What I find is data Data does a lot of heavy lifting for you. Mm -hmm. So like in this Mm -hmm. particular case with that guy who I told he was going to bury his business, Mm -hmm. I showed him like, there's almost no one on unemployment in Columbus, Ohio maybe 15,000 people, most of yeah. take the job anyway. I tried mm-hmm. to show him with all the data. He didn't want to believe the data. Like, I'm not lying. You have to believe that the Census Bureau is lying. The Bureau of Labor Statistics is lying. The New York Times is lying. Wall Street Journal is lying. Everybody has to be a liar for you to believe this. Kind of like a conspiracy theorist. You know, they. the interesting thing about conspiracy theorists is that it's not that they believe in a conspiracy. It's that they believe in all of them. <laughs> they, they believe mm-hmm. the earth is flat. We can't go to the moon. Like all, all of the conspiracies, they have this in their mind that they want what they want and they should be able to get it. 
And what I generally do at the beginning of the conversation is remove the outdated assumptions and replace them with what reality actually looks like now. So you get a clear view of what you have to do. So we call that a higher resolution lens. Like I'm going to let you see the data. I'm going to let you look at it so you can ingest it and decide what it means for you when you see it. Because I got to get rid of the false assumptions that you believe so that I can give you the paradigm shift to say what you did seven years ago when you made that decision was exactly right. Mm. But now it's 2022, 8.5% inflation, almost no one on unemployment. You're going to have a very difficult environment now to work in. We have a recession coming. Our Fed's raising rates. I'm going to show them everything that I can so that they realize time to do something different. And I think on that point as well, what I find interesting, and by the way, before we wrap up, this is a, this is the question I'm really curious to dig that little bit deeper in with you is this concept of being liked versus likable as a salesperson. And you've spoken about this before. And when I hear you speak, I can, I can get a very big sense that you don't really care if somebody likes you because what you're focusing on is being a trusted advisor and giving your honest perspective. But you do care about being likable because right. I mean, you're a human being, right? It's, you, you don't just want to be a, you don't want to be a jerk. You want to be likable, right? So could you tell us a little bit about when you're coaching salespeople, the biggest mistake or telltale signs that a prospect can have as to, oh my God, this person is just being inauthentic. They just want to be liked so bad. They're reeking of insecurity here. What are the telltale signs? First of all, they're, they're generally conflict averse at the beginning. So right. any conflict causes that person to feel something inside about themselves that they're uncomfortable with. I've already said this. I'm an Enneagram 8, which means I don't really care if you like me or not. I'm okay either mm. way. And I'm perfectly comfortable in conflict. In fact, I start conflict lots of times. It's my nature. And it's yeah. all an adaptation to my childhood. And that's what it is. So I know exactly why I'm here. And I know how to get out of being an eight uh, when I don't want to. But there's a mm. difference between needing to be liked. So that that's something that you have to deal with emotionally. Like, why do you need to be liked? Like, And, and that's something people need to do some work on. To figure out, like, why do I need this? Why am I not okay, even if people don't like me? And there are people who don't like me, and I'm I'm sure of that. I had a guy tell me once I gave a speech, and he goes, "There was one guy at the back of the room that hates you." He said everything <laughs> that you said is wrong, and I'm like, "Just one? I got to try a lot harder. I should have got fifty for sure. I should have fifty going. Like that guy is wrong about everything. I didn't try hard enough." So. It's okay. Not everybody has to love you. There's 7.8 billion people on the planet. Not all of them are going to love you. You're not their cup of tea. And so that, that's just how it works. But when you need it, it becomes a detriment to selling. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to invite conflict or try to create conflict, but you do always have to be likable and likable for what though? So that, that's the question that I would ask you is like, what do you want to be liked for? I want to be liked for taking care of my clients, for helping them understand their environment better than anyone else, to help guide them to better results. And if they like me as a person, that's good too. But I want to be liked for the, the value that I create for other people. And I would rather have that than have them like me and say, Anthony's a really fun guy to hang out with, super nice guy, like him a lot, doesn't know anything that would help us get better results. And that that's sort of the two dimensions that you you think about. Like you've got, I need to be liked. What do you want to be liked for? For being likable? No, they have to buy something from you. They need your advice. They need your counsel, your recommendations. Yeah, but I want them to like me. For what? What do you want to be liked for? Being a nice guy? Get some new friends. I mean, you, you can have a lot of people that like you. I think it's a detriment. I also think that the rapport building that people do is so awkward now. Ravi, you know, my cousin uh, once went to London. We're practically brothers. We should be doing work together. Like, like and you're like, how'd you make that leap? <laughs> like somebody you knew went to London one time and now we're best of friends. It's so awkward. Like my cousin went to the same college that you went to. What's the rest of the conversation about? Like, I don't know. Like, wow, <laughs> I, I don't have anything to say after that. that. That doesn't give you rapport. 
business people right now, I would tell you the rapport in business is a business conversation. People want to see, are you, are you a business person? And here in the United States, and I'm going to throw London into this because London is a busy, busy city. Like it's a business city. There's no doubt about it. Business is being done in London because it's a, that's what they do in London. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but maybe people who are listening here in the United States, we're all business. Everybody's interested in other people's business. They want to have business conversations. You don't have to try so hard to be liked. If you have something to offer, you're going to do well. If you can create value, if you don't, doesn't really matter. After that, they're going to move on anyway. Well, dude, it's very interesting what you say about, hey, how's the weather? Da, 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 that, that start of the conversation. Now, I like to, given what I focus on anyway, is focus on a story which is always connected to the problem and the source of their pain. So if I'm talking about something, how does it actually tie into business value, which then segues beautifully into the conversation versus, like you said, these places where it goes from close-ended question to close-ended question. And then you're like, shit what now like what are we doing but ladies and gents that is anthony in arena dude thank you for your time man and i suppose the question i have for you is as somebody who's writing every single day who's absorbing so much from others because i get the feeling you're an empath as well and you like to pick up on other people's energy pick up on what's good and then dispose of what doesn't work for you personally who do you look up to as somebody who communicates with influence and why I mean, there's a number of people that I think are really good uh, communicators. Um, I think Ray Dalio from mm. Bridgewater, I think he has a, an amazing ability to sense make. Like he can tell you what the world looks like. I study with a guy named Ken Wilbur. Ken Wilbur is okay. the most cited uh, academic in the United States. And uh, he's got a theory called integral theory. So I study with Ken and he's an incredible communicator. Uh, especially another sense maker. So I generally like people who have a clearer lens than mine. I want to steal the lens from them. So that's that's why I find people like that. I've got a friend named Howard Bloom who's in uh, New York and Brooklyn. He was the publicist for ACDC, ZZ Top. No uh, way. Peter Mellencamp, Joan Jett, Aerosmith, ev- anybody that you ever knew. And he got chronic Mm -hmm. fatigue syndrome. And when he had that, he started writing a book called The Lucifer Principle. And uh, he's got a super, super clear lens on mimetics, memes, not like cat videos, like how we infect each other with beliefs and how some of those beliefs actually have a defense mechanism that makes it hard for you to uninstall the the belief. So Mm -hmm. that book is just another clear lens. So the people that I think are really good communicators are mostly sense makers, people who can explain what, how, why, and that's the part that I like. I want to understand what I'm looking at. And if the lens isn't very good, you want a better lens. Well, I tell you what, I think after this episode, people are going to be like, I, w- I want to steal this guy's lens, man. I want to get a bit of this. So your book is, well, I suppose when this episode comes out, it'll be out everywhere across the world. So where can people go to ultimately get that book, but also just absorb more of your learnings and teachings? Thesalesblog.com. That's my primary platform. I have uh, probably 5,000 posts now, something like that. And wow. if you would just click on blog and then you click on search, whatever you're searching for, you'll find it there. I also have a YouTube channel where I spent one year doing a, a video a day. So there's about 350 videos there of me sharing something. I believe the value at that time. I haven't gone back to watch those, but I'm getting ready to do that again and do another hundred. Nice, man. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I feel like I have to do that now. And then uh, there is... Uh, on the blog, if you search for podcasts, there's a bunch of podcasts I've done with people like Ken Wilber and Howard Bloom and a lot of people in the sales space. And well, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll bring you on. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd love to kick it with you and uh, talk about all things storytelling, man. And what we'll do is for those of you listening right now, check out the show notes and there'll be a link to Anthony's YouTube channel, the blog, the books and all that good stuff. And you've also got uh, the Outbound Conference coming soon with your business partner. And if you guys haven't checked out what the Outbound Conference is, go on YouTube, just click Outbound Conference. And from the energy, you'll be like, where can I get a ticket? It's such a great show. I want to say one thing about what you said, opening the conversation with a story that explains why the client Mm. has a problem. 
It's the yeah. same thing I'm doing. I'm doing it with data. You're doing yeah. it with a story. But it yes, starts exactly. with why change, and it causes a different reaction from the person because you don't look like a beggar. You don't look like somebody who's going to have to ask me a lot of questions about what's going on. And it, it positions you as someone who knows more at the very beginning. Whether you like my approach with data or you like a story, the story tells them exactly what they need to know to not be one down anymore. Like now I just understood something that I didn't understand before. Super powerful approach. I love the concept of one up and one down. And before we actually finish up, it's funny. When I first started my career in corporate sales and I worked in investment banking, there was a sticky note on the monitor of my mentor's desk. And I walked past it one morning. I was like, what does that say? What's that sticky note? And I looked closer and it said, tell them something that they didn't know before they interacted with you. And I was like, dude, what, what is that? What do you mean? And we were, he was ultimately telling me about the speed of revelation. The quicker you can reveal something that they didn't know about themselves or the market, the quicker you can build trust. And that stayed with me because as a young salesperson who felt, oh my God, how am I going to interact with these CFOs who are way older than me and way more experienced? That story, which I tell is ultimately what I teach reps to do now. So I'm really aligned with you on that, man. Really aligned. Generally, if I'm with a C-level executive long enough and we go to dinner, I'll, um, at some point in dinner, I'll sort of grab their arm with a, mm. with a, like a, with a strong grip on it, and, yeah. uh, something that they're not ready for, but they don't ever pull their arm away. And, and yeah. then I'll say something like, how long before people figure out you have no idea what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> you actually and, they, and they, they all say the same thing they're all like i didn't know i was going to be in this role i have no idea yeah. i'm trying to figure it out every day you know and they just reveal like there's so much human emotion and frailty about not knowing the things that you need to know oh my god yeah the ceo now this big company and they're like how the hell do you do this like they don't know they have to figure it out day to day just like everybody else that's why they need you to be a trusted advisor and a consultative salesperson and reveal something to them that helps them feel better about what they're doing. Ladies and gents, I don't even know why I'm about to say what I'm about to say, but this isn't contra- like I was going to say this contrarian view. It's why is it contrarian? Like it, it just shouldn't be. So the idea is to what Anthony's really spoken about today about being a trusted advisor Take it on board, people. I've enjoyed this episode. I feel like we could do a part two, man. But ladies and gents, I will see you next week for another episode. Peace. Oh, okay, okay. Hold on. So you thought that this was the part of the show where I say something like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you did enjoy the show, then please drop us a review and do share it with a friend. Well, I'll tell you what. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to be predictable here, okay? Do share it with a friend and do drop us a review if you got some value from today's episode, okay? So if you want to impact people, remember, you need to learn how to influence them first. 